Good morning. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you are a guest with us today, or maybe you're still new here, we are really glad to have you, and we hope that you feel welcome uh, worshiping with our church family. Uh, today, <clears throat> our sermon is titled Consummation, and it's a, a title that implies that we're dealing with the end-all, be-all of the entire Bible. This is where everything is headed. This is where everything ends up. And this is what it's all about. And in this Advent season, we're focusing on the second coming for two reasons. Comfort and hope. And I certainly want that to be true for you. And I hope it's been true thus far. But at the same time, perhaps if you were honest, you might also be somewhat confused. Because talking about the second coming can be a lot to process. It can be a lot to take in. So far, we've been in 1 Thessalonians and 1 John, and we get glimpses of what the second coming means for us, but can also feel disconnected and fragmented and unorganized in our minds, and we think, you know, how does all of this fit together? How does the first coming of Christ relate to the second coming of Christ? What does Jesus' birth have to do with Jesus' return? And all of it can feel just like unrelated events. And it can be hard to see the whole story. It's like watching a movie in different parts and you're left to try and connect the dots and put all the scenes together so that you understand the story. And maybe you feel that way. But then on top of that, if you've noticed, when the Bible talks about the second coming, it always talks about resurrection. Resurrection is at every point when it talks about the second coming of Christ, and that raises new questions. And our understanding of death and heaven makes us think, you know, well, if they're resurrected, then that, does that mean that the dead are sleeping unconsciously in a soul sleep? Are they in heaven now? And how is that supposed to give me hope? Is this a Christmas series or is it an Easter series? And then on top of all of that, we arrive at a passage like this that talks about the second coming and it talks about the consummation of all things, and it's even more confusing. Because did you hear verse 26? The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. I know, right? Isn't that just a warm blanket for your soul? It's like, Paul, easy on the hope, buddy. Not too much at once. No, it's confusing. Of course it's confusing. And if you feel confused by all of that, that's okay, because the gospel is a story that is as simple as it is complex. It's a story that can be received fully by the hearts of our children and it can confound the wisest, smartest of theologians. And I knew that when we did this series and we did the second coming during Advent, we'd eventually need to take some time to try and put the pieces together and see how all of it fits, to understand this story. And here's why. Because I want you to experience hope. And your experience of hope is a product of understanding the story that you live inside. 
Your experience of hope is a product of understanding the story that you live inside. And sometimes we forget the story that we live inside, which means that we need to be reminded of the beauty and scope and consummation of the gospel story. And despite appearances, despite verse 26, this passage is actually a great passage to help us understand how everything fits together. Because it talks about the fundamental point, the fundamental story of our existence. It's talking about the whole point of all things, of everything. And to see that, we have to do what Paul does in this passage. We have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Because for Paul, you cannot understand the consummation of all things unless you understand the creation of all things. You can't understand the end unless you understand the beginning. You have to see consummation in light of creation. And for Paul, the way that you do that is you look at the grand, overarching, beginning-to-end story of the Bible through two men. You look at it through the stories of Adam and Jesus. And when we're able to see the story of the Bible through them, it starts to pull all of the pieces together. And we see the fabric of this biblical story. But you also see your own story. Because their story is your story. So, let's start from the beginning. It's the Christmas season, which means that you are thinking about giving gifts, getting them all ready to be given to those you love. And did you know that is exactly how the Bible starts? It begins with God preparing gifts to give to his beloved. It's a story that begins with all that God wanted to give. So what's the first thing he gives? Well, when God made Adam, he came down to earth and he scooped up the dirt with his hands and he shaped Adam out of the dust, like a potter working with clay, creating his masterpiece. And when he finished forming the man, he comes close. He comes face to face and he breathes his life into his nostrils. You see that playing out in your mind. Because when Adam comes to life and breathes in the life of God. He opens his eyes, and the first thing that he sees is the shining, smiling face of God. That's a great way to wake up. And right there, from the very beginning, you're given the whole point of the biblical story. It's to behold and live before the face of God. That's the point of your existence. That is the purpose for why you were made. To behold the face of your God and enjoy and know divine, unending intimacy. Because that's the first gift that God gives. Because from the very beginning, the first gift that he gives is himself. It's himself. He made man to breathe in his life. To behold his face, to live in the fullness of his presence, which means that at the core of your being, at the very bottom 
of your soul, you have a need and desire for divine love, divine approval, divine satisfaction, divine affirmation, divine delight. You are made for divine intimacy to behold the face of your God. And it's that intimacy that explains all of the other gifts that God gives. Because the second gift that God gives Adam is a father. We don't think of it that way, do we? God made Adam in his image, in the image of God, in his likeness. And to be made in the image of God means that Adam was created to be a son. Why? Because God wanted to give himself as a father. And what does any good father do? Well, he provides for his son. Because the third gift that God gives his son is a big one. It's a huge one. God gives Adam one big giant gift called the cosmos. The universe. All of creation. All that he had created in all of its splendor and beauty and glory and perfection. All of that he gave gift wrapped with divine love. And he says, son, all that I have I give to you. It's yours. And it says that God brought all the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. Like a father bringing home a puppy to his children. And amidst all the giggles and all the laughter and all the joy, what's the first question that gets asked? What do you want to name it? This is a story of a father and a son and a father that gives all that he had made to that son. But there's more gifts under that tree. Because the fourth gift that God the Father gives the Son is a wife. Adam wakes up a second time. And when he wakes up before him, he sees something unlike anything else that God had made. He sees his bride. He sees the woman. He sees Eve. And how does Adam respond? Praise hands. That's how. He starts writing some poetry. He sings a song, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I am yours and you are mine. God gave Adam a wife, a companion, a lover, a fellow laborer, and a friend. But God gives even more because it says that he blessed them and he gave them authority. And not just a little authority, all the authority. Because he says to them, I give you dominion over everything. I share my authority with you. As my children, you will rule and reign over all that I have made. God gives his children power and authority to rule and reign over creation as kings and queens. God gives them a crown and places it on their head and makes them divine royalty. But there's more. Because God gives them a home. He prepared a special place for them called the Garden of Eden. A forever home. It was paradise. Not on our best day could we possibly imagine what that paradise was like. But what made that place so special and beautiful, what made it paradise was that this was the place where God met with them. This is where he walked and he talked with them. Why? Because God wanted to fill their home with his presence. 
And lastly, God gave them purpose. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What's he saying? He's giving Adam the opportunity to be like him. In the same way that God subdued the chaos and cultivated life, Adam was to be like God and use his authority to bring forth life and beauty and cultivate the earth. But specifically what that meant was that Adam was intended to extend the garden across the earth. His purpose was to cultivate the world by extending the garden across the face of the earth. Why? So that the whole world would be the garden. So that the whole world would be the place where God dwells with man. So that the whole world would be filled with his presence and glory like the waters covered the sea. That was the heart and desire of God. And that was Adam's purpose. To rule and to reign and subdue the earth. He knew joy and power and authority beyond measure and beyond comprehension and was able to extend that paradise across the face of the earth. And then his job was to take all of that and hand it back to the Father. And what would the Father do? The Father would fill it with his presence because God desires to dwell with man. That was Adam's purpose. That was also your purpose. That's why you exist. But the story didn't turn out that way, did it? That's because God also gave a promise. He brings Adam, his son, to a tree. And he said, Adam, my son, everything I have I give you, but of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat of it. If you do eat of it, In that day, you are going to die. Now, if you look at that and you're like, it's just a little simple prohibition that God gave Adam, that just totally misses the point. Because up to this point in the story, what does this communicate to us? God is saying, my son, I want you to listen to my words. I want you to be guided by my voice. I want you to remember everything that I have given you And I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. And so when the serpent comes along, that's the very thing that he attacks. Can this God be trusted? This God who gave so much, can he be trusted? And the first thing that he starts casting doubt on was God's words. And he said, Adam, did God really say? Did God really say? And then he started casting doubt on God's goodness and he says, no, God knows that if you eat of the tree that you'll become like him. Sounds to me like maybe he's not telling you the whole truth. Sounds like maybe he's withholding some good things from you. Sounds like maybe he can't be trusted. And then he starts to deceive Adam into thinking that he could still have everything that God had given him and he didn't need God to hang on to it. He could still have all that power and authority and bliss and he didn't need to be dependent upon God and he could live life on his own terms and in his own ways. What did the serpent put on the table? Exactly what Mark talked about last week. If you could have everything that you ever dreamed and could possibly imagine. Or 
If you could behold the face of God, which would you choose? Which would you choose? Adam made his choice. Instead of trusting the words of God, he trusted the words of the serpent. And instead of killing the serpent, he had a conversation with it. And he chose a life on his terms where he could live as though God were the one that was effectively dead. Adam ate the fruit and death entered the world. And let's be honest, there's always that part of us whenever we get to this part in the story where we're like, really, just a piece of fruit? Just a piece of, like, the, the world is the way it is because of a piece of fruit. All the sadness and sorrow and loss and tragedy of this world is because some guy reached out and grabbed a piece of fruit. But do we hear the story? If I came to you this week when you were getting gas and I just popped out from behind the gas pump, I said, hey, want to be weird, I get it, but just go with me here. <laughs> and I said, hey, here's a dollar. I want you to trust me. Here's a dollar. And if you walk into that gas station and buy a lottery ticket, I don't care which lottery ticket you buy, whichever one you buy, just buy a lottery ticket. And if you do, you will win $100 billion. So you take the dollar, and you walk into that gas station. But when you walk in, you're hungry. And you look over, and there's that king-size bag of peanut M&Ms on sale. And you buy the M&Ms. I think we can all say that that would be the dumbest decision of all time but not because of the M&Ms. We look at this story of the fall and we always look at the wrong thing. The story of the fall isn't about Adam grabbing a piece of fruit. It's about all that he was willing to give up when he did. God gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave and gave to Adam. And Adam gave it all up. He chose an existence that didn't need God, an existence on his own terms, an existence doing what he wanted, an existence doing what he thought was good. He chose a life where he could live as though God didn't exist. And when he did, death entered the world like a virus. And that's where we come in. Because if you remember, God told Adam that if he ate of the tree, he would surely die. But he didn't die immediately, did he? At least not in the way that we think of death. We think of death as the moment that we stop breathing, when brain waves cease and when hearts stop. And death is certainly a power that's at work in this world that culminates in physical death. But the Bible gives a much deeper picture of what death is. Because the fall is also a story of a living death. A spiritual death. Because death is a curse that separates you from everything that you were created for. Adam was kicked out of the garden, and he lost everything that God gave him. He lost all that power and authority that he was made to possess. He lost that peace and security in his world. He lost that intimacy with his spouse that brought unending joy. He lost paradise. He lost purpose. He lost everything that God gave him. 
Because ultimately, he lost the presence of God and he was no longer able to see his face. Adam lost everything that he was made to be, to possess, and to experience. But here's the real curse of the fall and here's the real living death is that God never took away Adam's desire for those things. When Adam was kicked out of the garden, his desire for those things still remained, but he was banished to a world where he would never, ever find them. And all of those endless desires for power and dominion, joy and satisfaction, purpose, affirmation, all of that would still exist deep within his soul, yet now he had to learn to exist in a world that would only produce pain and toil and sorrow. And whatever joy and happiness he could muster up in his life, it would never, ever, ever come close to what he lost. And the consummation of his life would end in death. And instead of knowing the glory which he was created for, death would return him to the ground from which he came. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Do you see how great is the fall of man? The fall of man is not just a little event. It's an explanation. It's the only explanation. It's a story that can be hard to explain, but it's the story that explains everything. It's how we see and understand the story of this world. It's how we understand our condition, our desire for beauty and our capacity for brokenness. The story of humanity that was created for glory, it's trapped in this world in a desperate search to find all that was lost and fill those endless desires within them. That's why G.K. Chesterton said, you can hear it in all great poetry and in every line of every song that happiness isn't just a hope. It's also in some strange manner a distant memory. We are all kings in exile. And Adam's story is our story. It's the only way that makes sense of all that we long for and all that we desire and why we don't have it. We too still long for life in the garden and to experience everything that we were created for, yet we are banished to that same world where we will never, ever find it. And the sin in your heart will convince you that you still can. And when death comes, it will eventually remind you that in the end, you can't. It's a tragic and hopeless story. It's a tragic story because we still long for the face of God and we still look for it in the face of our lover, our children. We look for it in the affirmation and approval in the face of a friend. We desire the power and authority that we were made to possess over our world, and yet we can barely keep our house clean. We long for safety and the beauty of paradise, yet we know sooner or later, tragedy lurks around the corner, 
We look for purpose and meaning in our career, yet it will never be enough. And one day that body just will not let you work anymore. We long for intimacy and connection with others, yet we are plagued with insecurities and cursed with a promise that says sooner or later you will be hurt and you will be betrayed. Life is endless longing in a world of loss. Because death is the great reminder that buried deep within you, buried deep within the heart of man, are desires that will never be satisfied, ever. And so whatever joy and happiness and significance you can scrape out of your existence, it will never, ever come close to what you were created for. And we better enjoy it while we can. Why? Because death is also a ticking clock. And it's winding down. And the sad reality, the sad contrast, the beginning of this story is that when all that's left to remember us is a headstone, even that too will be worn away by time and wind and weather. And we all end up in unmarked graves sooner or later and forgotten. And how different could that be than the beginning of the story for those that were made to be remembered and no intimacy with the divine? Death is a curse. Death is what says your life is vanity. Death is what says that your life is meaningless. Death is what says your life is utterly insignificant. Death is what rips away every loved one from your arms. Death is what makes you die and grow old and age slowly over time as you watch the body you try to keep beautiful give up slowly and continuously. Death will take whatever treasure you try to store up for yourself. Death is not the next chapter. Death is not a doorway. Death is not part of some grand circle of life. Death is a robber. Death is an uncreator. Death is a curse. Death is the last enemy. Death is hopeless. The story of the fall is sad and hopeless beyond measure. Sometimes we forget that, don't we? Sometimes we forget the tragedy of this story. And we need to feel it. Because we as Christians need to remember that. We need to feel and remember the hopelessness of the story. Why? Because if we don't feel the hopelessness of this world, then we will hope in the things of this world. And that is a living death. We need to feel the hopelessness of this world so that we can remember where hope is found. Because like I said, the hope that you experience is a product of understanding the story that you live inside. And even though this biblical story will take you and invite you to the utter depths of human despair if you're willing to dwell on it, the story does not end in death. Why? Because we have Christmas. That's why. Christmas is the part of the story that tells us God was not done giving gifts to the world. He had one more gift that he wanted to give. In fact, he saved the best gift for when the world was at its worst. It was a gift wrapped in flesh and blood and divine love. God gave the world another son, the son, 
The Son of God who would take on flesh and become man, the man, the image of God. He would be a second Adam to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do and reclaim what the first Adam lost. Christmas announces that God has not given up on his purposes for humanity and they shall stand and they will be accomplished because it announces the arrival of a second Adam, the true son who would begin to undo the power of Satan and the curse of sin and death because this son had to face the serpent too and go toe-to-toe with him. But it wasn't in paradise this time. No, this son had to face the serpent in the wilderness when he was starving and hungry and alone. And the serpent tried to deceive the second son the same way he did the first, to just simply reach out and make food to satisfy that hunger within him. Turn those stones into bread. And then the serpent tried to deceive the son into thinking that God wasn't good to him and didn't want good things for him. How could a good God allow him to suffer? And then he tried to deceive this son into grasping at power and authority and offered him the chance to rule over all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he didn't need God to do it. He just says, bow and give your allegiance to me, and it's all yours. But this son did what the first son didn't do. He trusted in the words of his father. And he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And when this son was victorious over the serpent, you start to see the story change. Now you start to see demons cry out whenever this son walks over the hill and they cry out and say, have mercy on us, son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? They beg for mercy because now a new power had entered into this world. One had come over whom the serpent had no power. And this son comes with a new kind of authority that walks on water and he commands the wind and the waves one who reclaims man's authority and dominion over creation. The Son comes with power to subdue the chaos and effects of sin in this world, and he cultivates life. He brings restoration. He restores the humanity of his beloved by giving and giving and giving and giving and giving, just like his Father. He gives sight to the blind. He gives healing to crippled legs. He gives healing to diseases. He gives freedom where there is bondage, and he sets free from the power of sin. This is one who comes with power, but this is also one, this son, had one last test to endure, because he had to come face to face with the last enemy. And it sounds familiar, because he too, just like before him, God brought his son to a tree to face death. And when he was hanging on that tree, he was mocked by the crowds that said, if you're truly the son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. Save yourself. But he doesn't. He doesn't save himself. He doesn't look out for his own interests. He doesn't seek his own welfare. He doesn't preserve his own life. Instead, this son did the complete opposite of what the first son did. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
I trust you. I trust you into death. I trust you to deliver me. I trust your goodness. I trust your promises. I trust you with my life. I trust you. And when Christ was raised from the dead, it was the announcement that death had been defeated because death could not keep its grip upon him. And at his ascension into heaven, this resurrected son makes a claim that should sound familiar because what's he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God's purposes for humanity have been restored and reclaimed in me. Therefore, go into all of the world and tell the world that death has been defeated so that the fullness of my brothers and sisters can come in and know that I am with you. Know that I will never leave you or forsake you and remember that I'm coming for you. Remember that I am coming for you. And Paul tells us in this passage that when the end comes at the appointed time, Christ will return with all of that power and authority and he will raise the dead. But do you hear it? Do you hear the echoes of creation? Do you hear how at the second coming, the dead will rise from the dust of the earth and they will be recreated with glorified bodies, remade in Christ's image, and all things will be made new because he will remove the enemies of Satan and sin and death from this world and he will destroy every rule and every power and every authority. He will have dominion over the earth and he will subdue it, which brings us all the way back to that strange verse we read at the beginning. But now I hope you can see it and it makes much more sense and is far less confusing because it means that Christ, the second Adam, will do what the first Adam did not. He will subdue the earth and then he will offer it back to the Father and the Father will do what he desired from the very beginning. He will fill the earth with his presence and the earth will be filled with his glory like the waters cover the sea and God will fully dwell with man so that God may be all in all. And at this point, this story ends the same way it started. Because at the consummation of all things, the Father will fill this world with his presence and he will once again come face to face with you. And he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And there will no longer be any pain or sorrow or mourning or sadness. And all that was lost will be found once again. Your eternal purpose your power, your dominion is restored because you are a co-heir with Christ and you will live in the full presence of the living God for all eternity, world without end. Your hope is a product of understanding the story that you live inside. Sometimes we forget. And I know that was certainly true of me. On my first trip to India, that was 10 years ago, whenever we used to do teaching trips, we would spend three days teaching all day long. And on that trip, there was one particular day where we wanted to teach the story of the scriptures from beginning to end because they come out of Hinduism and they have so much that is new to them based on how they grow up and all that they learn and know to be true. So we spent that whole day 
teaching. And it was hot. I'm talking jungle hot. It was so hot. The type of heat where you just kind of slowly nod off all day. That's pretty much what was happening all day because it was just miserable. And we're going through the whole Bible, beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. At the end of this eight-hour day, the teacher's standing up, and they're sitting there talking about all that awaits us, that we will be co-heirs with Christ, the new Jerusalem. God will wipe away all the tears, all the sadness, all the sorrow, all the pain, and we will spend eternity in full rest, full peace, with no suffering before the face of God. And whenever they started describing all, or he started describing all of that, they all woke up big time. They started clapping their hands and lifting their hands and lifting their voice and breaking out in song. And I was surprised by it. It just kind of came out of nowhere at the end of a long, sleepy day. Perhaps it was because I'd forgotten the story. Forgotten this hope and the beauty of this story that we live inside and it meant something to them that I never saw before. Because years later, I would come across something that would make sense of that day. I always knew about Hinduism and that it's a cycle of death and rebirth and reincarnation. And that if you store up enough karma in this life, then you can be born at a higher level in the next life and then you work your way up that ladder amidst how many unending lives. And if you finally reach your end point, your destination, your final arrival place, that's called moksha, where you become one with the great unconscious universe. But I learned something on a particular day that I never knew before, which was that even the universe and their understanding is in an endless cycle of death and rebirth. Think about that. Which means that even if you achieve the end point, you achieve moksha and nirvana, it's only for a minute. Because even the universe is going to die and be reborn, and the cycle will repeat itself for all time, for all eternity no eternal rest. Never, ever arriving. How do you think that would make you feel and the hope that you would feel or not feel if you really knew there is no eternal rest? What kind of hope does that offer someone who's working 12 hours a day, six days a week, busting rocks with their hand in the rock quarry? Amidst all of their suffering and poverty and sickness and sorrow, what hope do they have? None. And whenever I read that and put all of it together, that's why they lifted their hands in worship that day. That's why they said hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah over and over again because the story changed. They had hope because they realized they live inside of a different story. And it gave them hope because no longer are they living inside of this idea of endless toil, endless sorrow, endless cycles of death and rebirth. And everyone you ever love will always ever be taken away from you over and over and over, life after life after life. But this story changed the game. Now they could have real hope. Now they could endure the suffering and the trials and the sadness of this life because they knew that it would come to an end. Now they could endure the sadness and the sorrow because they knew that someone was coming for them. Now they could resist the sin in their life and fight against their struggles because they knew it wouldn't last forever and it was worth it. Now they could deal with the hurt and face the pain and sorrow and living in this life and all of its betrayal and sadness because they know that all wrongs will eventually be made right. 
They could miss their loved ones and ache to see them again because they knew that they would. They could hold on to their children and know that not even death could separate them. It gave purpose to their suffering, purpose to their pain and their sorrow, and it gives them hope in the midst of all of their hurting because they lived inside of a new story, one where Christ defeats death and one in which Christ will make all things new. Christian, you can have hope because do you know who's coming for you? And don't you know all that he longs to give you? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.